This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So tonight, I'm going to try not to lose my voice more than it is already lost. Uh, Those of you who know me well know that I also coach soccer on the side, and we are right in the middle of our season, actually approaching the end of our season. I coach at Warner Pacific University, and last week we we tied and lost these games that we should not have tied and lost. And so this week was like this turning point for us. And we had some sit down powwows with our group of like, guys, you got to pull it together and you got to believe in yourself. And, you know, we had these like real deep pep talks, right? This week is important. We got big games, right? We're playing two teams that we uh, were equally matched with. We knew they were going to be grindy. On Friday, we win one nothing, and we played terribly. We're like, hey, look it. We won a game, and we played terribly. Last night, I kid you not, this has nothing to do with my sermon. I just got to brag on my guys for a second. Um, last night, we are down 2 nothing while the Timbers are playing at the same time, right? Meanwhile, out in Gresham, Warner Pacific Knights are playing, playing a team from Montana, and we're down 2 nothing with seven minutes to go in the game. One of our guys gets taken down in the box. We get a penalty and we go two to one. And I look at our assistant coach and I'm like, we're tying this game, right? We're all over them. A minute and a half left in the game. One of our guys goes across the box, puts it far post. We tie the game. So it's a minute and 30 seconds left. We tie the game. My voice is already gone. I'm screaming, going crazy. We go into overtime. And I guess the proper way to say it now, it's like sudden victory or golden goal, right? You, you win. And, and or you, you score, the next team to score wins the game. We're four minutes in, and one of their players plays the ball back to their goalkeeper, and one of our strikers reads it, and he's going. It's one-on-one. They're coming out. He puts it past the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper grabs his ankles, trying to grab him or stop him. He's crawling on all fours. The, the ref hasn't stopped it, and he pokes the goal in. Like We had 200 people there. They clear. Our bench is clear. I'm running across the field, and one of our players from Brazil is going this way. We go to hug. He goes tumbling. I'm screaming. I lost my voice, and that's the story of how I lost my voice. <clears throat> It was a great moment. It was a really proud moment. But I'm going to hack my way through this, this sermon. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the church. Um, last week, I started my sermon, and it, we talked about the Holy Spirit last week. And I sort of jokingly started off by saying, you know, the creed is divided up into these three sections, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in the middle, the Son, we've been talking about Jesus, the Son, for a long period of time, and for good reason. I mean, this is the, 
the centerpiece of our, of our faith is this person of Jesus. And then we get to the Spirit, and it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I made a comment that it's like, I believe in the Holy Spirit, pause, okay, moving on. Like, it's something like we don't know what to do with the Spirit. The creed does read, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then the next phrase is, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, we are only given, I have to offer like a sense of correction to what I said last week, because we only get to treat the Spirit, or that phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, as if it was just a standalone statement and then move on, if we do not believe that the core fundamental premise that defines the church is a continuing movement of the Spirit and the life of the church today. So this statement, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and the succeeding statements are completely dependent upon this belief that the Spirit is alive and moving and active in our world. So today is part two of I believe in the, in the Spirit, and we're going to talk about what it means to believe in the church or what it means to be the church. I was talking to Andy, one of our pastors and elders here this week, and I was uh, expressing my frustration actually yesterday to him in preparing the sermon. I'm like, why is this so hard? Why do I, I'm like fighting this tension that I feel in my spirit of like, I want to go in all these different directions. And I keep getting drawn back to this really simple, and to me, it seemed really rote or just repetitive and cliche, um, the idea of the church as the body of Christ. I didn't want to talk about the body of Christ because we talk about the body of Christ all the time. But in, this pro- in my process of praying through uh, this sermon tonight, I kept getting drawn back to what does it mean to be the body of Christ? And in this process of praying and working through this process personally, I encountered, uh, I, I think I encountered the Spirit in a new way um, this week as I was contemplating this idea of being the body of Christ. And that's what tonight is going to be, is kind of that process that I went through over the last couple days. The church as the body of Christ, when I try to think of what that has meant to me in the past, This is sort of how it has gone for me. And many of you probably who grew up in the church and were raised a Christian maybe have a similar experience. I often conceptualize this idea of the body of Christ as being a creative way of describing how people can be so different and have so many different talents. Like you have people who are really significant and people who are insignificant. You have people who are gifted communicators and people who are not. And the body is a way in which we understand how all of these differences can be united into one single space. So when I, my metaphor for the body of Christ, has, it focuses in on, okay, how do I make sense of how different we are and how we should work together as one unit? Now this isn't completely off base. I mean, Paul uses metaphors like this in Corinthians. We talked about it a little bit last week about how like you can't you can't say to 
a hand that you're less significant than the eye, we're all a part of the same body, right? And he's addressing dissension and division within the, within the church uh, as his process is unfolding of how the body should be one. But something that I think that I have missed, like at the core of, of this whole thing is what it meant. Okay, let me step back for a second. Let me try Let me start this process over again. To say we are the body of Christ, we have to first understand, I think we have to first grab onto what Christ's body, what Christ's physical body actually was and actually meant. Let's start there. Jesus Christ, the early apostles, drove this point home over and over and over again. And Andy has done a great job of laying this out. In the early church, um, the early church fathers were adamant about contending any idea or philosophy that tried to diminish the humanity, the actual flesh and blood of Jesus's personal body. Now, the idea of how the divine and the human can be together in one is this mystery that befuddles the human mind. Like we, it's so hard to conceptualize this idea of divine and human working together as one, in one thing. So there was multiple uh, theologies that arose in the early church that tried to sidestep or tried to come to an explanation of how this mystery was possible. And one of the most common ones, and honestly one that I subliminally a lot of times embrace, and I'll explain a little bit more later, is this idea that Christ's humanity was humanity-ish. It was this humanity that was, yes, it was actually flesh and blood. You could go and you could touch it and you could experience it. But it wasn't quite the humanity that you and I experience in the here and now. It was like this special category of humanity. It was this divine humanity. And this divineness, it was actually essentially divine, and yet it had the coverage of humanity. And through this perspective, we give Jesus an out in a lot of different ways. Or there's this disconnect that you and I have, I feel like, with the person of Jesus, the flesh and blood of Jesus. Let me explain in by giving some examples of what I'm talking about. There's a scene in the gospel where Jesus goes and heals a leper, right? So leprosy in the ancient world is this contagious disease, right? It's this thing or the idea of, of leprosy is if you cross-contaminate with a leper, then you, your personal body is susceptible to that disease. And so Jesus comes in on the scene, and I have often, I'm often guilty of this idea that like, okay, yes, Jesus can go and touch and embrace and hold the leper because he's Jesus. 
somehow the humanity of Jesus is different than the normal person. And so he can touch it because his divinity steps in and he's immune to it. What if, what if the story of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus isn't this story of God coming down and secretly and covertly going in disguise in the form of a human so that the divinity can walk along the earth in some coercive, secret way and work the divine in human form. But what if the power of the humanity of Jesus was the fact that Jesus, God, chose to take on humanity in its fullness? to take it upon his shoulders and in doing so, make himself vulnerable to the same disease, to the same isolation, to the same brokenness that you and I as fellow humans experience and embrace. So in doing so, when Jesus walks up to the leper and touches the leper, it's not this God who is immune to the disease of leprosy touching the leper. It is a human. It is God in flesh who is fully susceptible to the cross-contamination who for the sake of the dignity of the disease says, I will take that disease and I will put it on. I will bear that disease with the woman who bleeds for multiple years. And Jesus is walking through the crowd and she reaches out and touches his cloak. In Jewish culture, that touch, that contamination makes Jesus unclean. And I love that passage where it, there's this idea where Jesus is walking through and he, he feels something. He feels something leave him. And he turns around and he sees the embrace of a woman who is ostracized from being categorically unclean. There's a physical transference. There's something in this physical touch that robs Jesus of something. Categorically, it makes him unclean. And he feels it. He feels it in the flesh and the blood. And he turns around and he looks at that woman, knowing that she has taken something from him. And he looks at her with the embrace of a father. And he invites her, in. he willingly takes that upon his shoulders. When he could con- condemn her, he should condemn her for imposing her contamination upon him. Instead, because this is the mission of Christ, he takes that contamination, he puts it upon his shoulders, and he bears it. And in the process, she is set free. He eats with tax collectors and sinners and meets with prostitutes. By the well. 
He couldn't just do that and get a get-out-of-jail-free card because he was the divine. No, eating with tax collectors and sinners and meeting with the prostitute actually cost him something. It cost him his honor. And he was fully aware that it cost him his honor. And yet, he walked into that space. He perpetually put himself into that space because the Christ mission, the reason why God took on flesh in the first place, the mission of that purpose was to shoulder, to put on the afflictions of humanity upon his shoulders and to bear it. The sum total of that posture, by Jesus taking the afflictions, the wounds, the brokenness, the greed, the hate, the envy, by piling it on his shoulders as he walked this journey through earth, led to the cross. And it is at the cross that he is physically up there because of the physical weight of the world that he chose to bear in the flesh and blood. And it led to the great physical climax of his death where his physical human body that felt every bit of pain that you and I felt hung on that cross. He took it to that degree. And he's hanging there. And he dies. His real flesh and blood dies. And then his resurrection comes. He says, death will not have the last word. No, I will conquer death through the physical resurrection of this body. Now, this is like my favorite part, right? Christianity is the anchor, the the linchpin, like the thing that everything hangs upon is this idea of death being defeated in the resurrection. Now, I want you to imagine a scene with me. Here is the resurrected Christ. Now, imagine the people who walked with the resurrected Christ, who physically touched his body in some shape, way, or form, being gathered around him in his resurrected form. They're standing there right prior to the ascension. This was a scene with his disciples. Imagine his disciples sitting at his feet. And Jesus telling them he's just getting ready to leave. And they're recounting in their minds the physical moments that they had with Jesus. The disease that left them through the touch. The mud that was spread on their eyes so that they could see. The touch that they felt for the very first time on their legs to make their legs move again. Imagine the disciples reliving the moment when their king, their God, bent down and washed their feet with his hands and touched them. Imagine the hugs and the the communal dipping of bread into the same joy and the laughter that they shared in their physical form, the presence. And they're standing in the presence of their God, the resurrected Christ. And he takes a baton and he hands it to them. And he says, you are my body. You are my body. The Spirit's going to come on you. You're not going to be alone. 
that touch, my hands, my feet, you are now it. Here's the baton. Here you go, church. Ready, go. Jesus leaves, and the Spirit comes on to the body of Christ. Those early believers, this metaphor of the body of Christ, meant something profound and physical to them. It was a responsibility. The body of Christ meant something to them. It was something they felt. It was something that transformed their life in a very physical, practical reality. When the early church grabbed on to this idea, it served as a commission. The, early, the word for church in the, in the New Testament is ecclesia. It means the sent out ones. As the body, the physical body of Christ is being sent out, they are grabbing hold of an identity and a responsibility to mimic or to take that personal body of Christ and to lead it forward into the communities with which they will go, where they will have practical, tangible effects on the people and the places with which they encounter. Tonight we see this profession of faith. We believe in the church, and there's two qualifiers. It is holy, and it is Catholic. I got, perhaps the biggest hang-up I had this whole week is the first word, holy. I have done church ministry since I was right out of college, 22 years old. I've been a full-time minister. And I have seen the good, the bad, and the really ugly of church life and ministry. And I've rubbed shoulders with folks in this congregation and others who have experienced physical, sexual, emotional abuse, who have been a part of really horrible things that the church has perpetrated. And I can't ignore the realities that issues of systemic racism and violence and things like that have been perpetuated by the church. How, on one hand, can all of those things be a reality, and on the other hand, we make this audacious claim that the church is holy? What does it mean for the church to be holy? You know, as a parent, one of the biggest challenges I think I have, we all have, those of us who are parents, is raising these little stinkers to actually, like, be something good and productive in this world, right? That's like our, our, our goal. So now, if my child were to come home from school and I it came home with a letter or I got a call from school because my kid popped somebody in the nose at lunch, I go to my child and I say, well, what happened? Well, they called me a booger face, so I popped him in the nose, right? There's a couple responses that I could have as a father to that child. I could shame my child and say, you are a despicable human being. That was a horrible, horrible decision. You're going to sit in this dark room and tell you never do that again, right? And just go on and on and on about how 
horrible they are, how wrong of a decision that was, and raise my child developing a core identity on the mistakes that they have made and the evils that they have perpetuated as a child. Or I could look at my child, sit down, bend down a knee, and say, look at me in the eye. You wear my name. You are a Marvin. This is how Marvins live. When somebody strikes us on the right cheek, we turn to them the other cheek. We don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. This, and in the process of doing so, I am reminding my child not of who they should be, but of who they are. You are a part of this family. And this is how this family handles ourselves. Not like that, but like this. It's not a, if you were a Marvin, you would do this. You are a Marvin, therefore we do this. This is how we live our life. This idea of the church being holy is not this philosophical evaluation of all the good and bad that the church has done. We have to embrace the evils that the church has done because we are complicit and we are responsible for those things. That, however, is not the defining force and identity of the church. The church is holy because what defines the church is the spirit of God moving through a people that forms Christ's body today. That is the church. And it is holy. And you and I live into the true holiness of our confession of faith that is central to who we are as a body of Christ. We are also Catholic. This is a hang-up, right? We have people in this congregation who come from Catholic backgrounds, have really positive experiences, and some who have really terrible experiences. And using this, this phrase, Catholic, in whatever form, uh, is sometimes triggering or a struggle. The word Catholic, seems it, it essentially means universal or of the whole. It's idea of being one. Just as Christ's body is one and cannot be divided into anything else, the body of Christ is and must be one. We are one as the body of Christ. We as this community, we're a part of a denomination called Foursquare. And Foursquare is a Pentecostal, uh, it comes from a Pentecostal background. And some of us love that, some of us hate that. And if anybody is honest with themselves, it's the furthest thing from perfect, just like any other denomination. Foursquare Theophilus is not the expression of church. We are a part of something that is so much greater. It is so much bigger. You know, one of the questions that we like to ask as Westerners, um, especially today, is can you be a Christian 
and not do this whole church thing. There is, for a lot of good reasons, a, a pushback or a, a resistance of organized religion because of a lot of justified, uh, a lot of justified experiences. And yet, we always have to remember that we cannot do this thing in isolation. You and I, there is an interdependence upon one another and the collective body to live into the expression of who we truly are as individual members of the broader body of Christ. There's an African theologian, Dr. Mbidi, who says, he frames it this way. He says, I am because we are. And since we are, therefore I am. I love this because it's, a, it's sort of a spin off of um, Descartes' proposition that says, I think, therefore I am, that has become the bedrock of our Western identity of learning to, to acknowledge our individualism above and beyond uh, everything else. And he says that I exist. I am a human created in the image of God. I am a part of the body of Christ because we are the body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ because I am transformed by the body of Christ. The glue that unites us, that weaves through this body and through the larger body of Christ is the ongoing wind and movement of the Spirit that we participate in individually and collectively. You can't have one without the other. This is a core part of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is our responsibility? Why does this even matter? Why even talk about this? Why, what does this actually practically affect in the world that we live in? I was um, having lunch this last week with uh, somebody in this congregation who is probably the most um, uh, hmm. This person is, more than anybody else that I've met, has, has committed themselves to transforming people on the margins or, or to being present with people on the margins and sacrificing their life to do it. It causes emotional anxiety. It causes lack of sleep at times because she cannot escape the fact that people are hungry and homeless and going without, and she can't just stand by and not do anything about it. To me, I am utterly convinced that this person among us is a prophet. They have the gift of prophecy. They live with the burden of God's declarative truth that humanity, our collective humanity, is deserving of dignity, of deserving of being brought in 
and treated with mutual love and respect. And she cannot, she cannot sleep knowing that that reality is not taking place in our world. For you and I to live into our calling to be the body of Christ, there is a responsibility that we have to embrace that identity like Christ embraced his identity as a human. To walk this planet, to walk down in our communities, and to look at the people who are on the margins, who are hurting and who are suffering, whose lives might cause us discomfort or disease or isolation from, from our communities or communities at large. And to say that me, as a member of the body of Christ, us, as members of the body of Christ, we exist to take those burdens upon ourselves, to shoulder the burdens of humanity and the brokenness of this world, not on our own power, but by the power of the Spirit who lives in us, so that humanity can be brought together and things can be made whole. I'm keep, I keep feeling in my spirit a uh, pause. And no, this actually is not one of my routine uh, moments of breakdown and anxiety. Honestly, I'm not feeling like super anxious right now at all. Those of you who are part of this community know what I'm talking about. Those of you not, come talk to me later. I'll share with you. Um, But I am feeling pause in my spirit, and I want to give space for that pause to just be. Um, I was telling Andy before, like, it's really hard for me to sometimes communicate things that I feel are sort of like abstract or philosophical. And sometimes I can stumble. The heart of what I'm trying to say in this message is that as the body of Christ, we have a very physical and practical responsibility um, in this world. And yet we cannot do it by simply pulling up our bootstraps, working harder at it on our own power, and healing the brokenness of this world, because you and I don't heal anything that's broken. The power of the Spirit that has the ability to heal and transform. You and I have been passed the baton and says, you're my body. Do what I did. And in the end, there'll be resurrection. By grabbing this baton, you are grabbing my death. You are grabbing my suffering. You are grabbing shame that I felt, isolation, the humiliation. Grab onto it. Be my body. There's reason why the rite of passage for the Christian life is baptism. We see it as some like, oh, this is like this cute ritual that we just go and we like go underwater and we come up and laugh and everyone cheers and that's what it is. We're being buried 
We're meeting Jesus at his tomb. (laughs) He comes and he dies and he invites us to die with him. And in the process of resurrection, he's like, here it goes. Spirit is with you. Go and be that. Now, for us, there's been, we have focused on personal spiritual development, being present and whole people. And for some, that's an anxiety of like, we're just going to become this intrinsic community that works on our own spiritual, like, individualism and is perpetually disconnected from the needs of this world. That is not the intent whatsoever. If we are going to have deep, real, profound, costly grace on our community and shoulder the weight and the burdens of our neighbors, then you darn well better believe we better be emotionally, spiritually, and physically ready to handle that weight. If we're just pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and going to do it on our own accord, that will have a very short shelf life. If we know who we are in the Spirit, and we walk in the Spirit, and we simply become the body of Christ who moves in the world through the power of the Spirit like he did, that causes change. That affects in a deep and real way. That is who the body of Christ is. Anything that acts counter to that is a tragedy, not a defining factor of who the church is. Let us live into who we are who God has made us and chosen us to be. Guys, I am terrified, honestly. I'm terrified and overjoyed to see where that journey takes us. This is a season of us embracing our death to lead to new life so that we can embrace the death and the brokenness that around us and watch new life emerge. It's going to be interesting. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a continually interesting journey, this following Jesus business. Tonight, we're going to come to the Lord's table like we do every week. I hope that we can see this table with maybe new eyes. This table is a physical act that has been passed down to us from our forefathers and mothers for 2,000 years. This is a meal that they partook in, the flesh and blood, with Jesus in the same bowl, and they dipped it, and they touched him. It meant something tangible and real to them. They are part of our body. This body transcends time and space. Peter and Paul were of the same stock. We dip in this, this blood and we eat this bread as a, remember, as a remembrance of who Christ was and what we have embraced as the body of Christ. This is Christ's body. This is our body. We are partakers of Christ's body as his body.
sit and reflect on your identity in Christ and our identity as a church in Christ. Jesus, shape us in the way that you would have us go. Remind us when we have verged crazy off to the left and to the right. May we be a people that senses and is obedient to the guidance of your spirit. You are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.